Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to welcome you to our class today. This is our first Wednesday of sharing some teachings in, related to meditation for the group learning program. Now that we've restarted the group learning program, on Sunday we're doing a three-part series on the Eightfold Path, diving really deeply into that, which is the path to enlightenment. And then on Wednesdays we're doing a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. The reason why we're doing this is because breathing mindfulness meditation is a central core teaching and practice that the Buddha shared in order to get to enlightenment. As we talked on Sunday, the cause of discontentedness is craving desire attachment. That's what causes all discontentedness, whether it's conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, or conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So those feelings of Sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy, shyness, displeasure, despair, grief, all of these discontent feelings and others are being caused by the same problem, which is craving desire attachment, the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind is holding on. Well, breathing mindfulness meditation is the way to eliminate craving desire attachment from the mind. Because you might remember that third noble truth is that we need to eliminate craving desire attachment in order to eliminate discontentedness. And then the Buddha points in the fourth noble truth to the Eightfold Path. Well, you'll hear in a couple of weeks that step eight is right concentration, which deals with meditation. So, even though we haven't really explored all the teachings of why we do breathing mindfulness meditation, I'd like to just touch on it here and help you to understand that it eliminates craving desire attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. Because craving desire attachment is the cause of discontentedness and this path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness, breathing mindfulness meditation is the primary practice that every practitioner would need in order to get to enlightenment and eliminate craving, desire, attachment, bringing the mind into a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content state because the mind, while you're focused on the breath, is going to want to run to the past or run to the future or do all these other things. And by staying focused on the breath, that's what helps train the mind to let go. But we're going to talk about this in a lot of detail today. And we'll probably even get to a point where we can actually do a breathing mindfulness meditation session together today. If we don't get to the point of being able to do one together today, we will surely do one next Wednesday. But what today is about is really giving you the understanding of why are you meditating? Why is it that you're meditating and how to actually do it? 
So just like I shared in our previous classes that I'm not interested in you believing anything that I have to say and that belief isn't going to get you to enlightenment. It's when you learn, reflect, and practice. You need to learn the teachings, reflect on those to independently verify them, and then practice so that you can see the truth for yourself that the discontentedness is gradually diminishing. So just like I'm not interested in you believing anything I have to say, I'm not even interested in you believing me that the Buddha actually taught meditation. There's no reason for you to even believe me that the Buddha taught meditation. So the first thing that I have to share with you are just some of the Buddha's words related to meditation to help you see that the Buddha did indeed teach meditation and it was a primary focus of his path, but it's not the only focus. A lot of people sometimes think you can meditate your way to enlightenment and you actually can't. You need more than just meditation in order to get to enlightenment. If you were just meditating and that's it, but then you were going outside being aggressive and harsh with people, you're not going to experience enlightenment. And likewise, if you were going outside and being polite and kind with people, but you weren't meditating, you wouldn't be able to cultivate the mind and develop the mind as far as you need in order to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that we refer to as enlightenment. So in order to not believe me that the Buddha even taught meditation, I'm just going to share a couple little excerpts. There's an entire book that I wrote that is dedicated to the words of the Buddha, where he shares breathing mindfulness meditation. These are extracts from all the different books of the Pali Canon, and it consolidates his most important teachings related to meditation. But here are just a couple, just so you don't have to believe me or believe anyone else in the world that the Buddha even taught anything called meditation. Instead, let's go back to the original source teachings, which is the Pali Canon in English. And now that we have these English translations, we can look to see what did the Buddha actually teach related to meditation. And here's just a couple. This first line is, meditate monks, do not be complacent, lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Well, if you're not meditating, if you're complacent and you're not really putting forth the effort and the dedication and diligence in your meditation practice, when you experience discontentedness later, when you're angry, when you're sad, when you're lonely, when you're bored, when you feel guilt and shame and fear, you're going to regret not having meditated. So what you're trying to do here is you're trying to get ahead of the curve. You're trying to get ahead of this unenlightened mind that just wants to crave and crave and desire, desire, be attached to everything. You're trying to get ahead of that by meditating. So what the Buddha is saying here is, you know, if you don't meditate, you're going to regret it later. Because when you're experiencing discontentedness, you're going to wish you had meditated more. Uh, likewise, if you end up not getting to enlightenment in this life and you are reborn, you'll regret that as well because there's constant rebirth. So by meditating, you'll be able to move the mind forward and actually experience the results of more and more improvement to the condition of the mind. So this complacency is a hindrance. So you're interested in eradicating complacency by being dedicated and determined and diligent on the path to enlightenment. The Buddha never used guilt, shame, or fear in order to share his teachings and encourage people to actually practice them. This is the only place that I've ever seen in the Buddhist teachings where he's kind of giving like a little bit of a hint like, yeah, you know, you're going to regret this if you don't meditate. 
you know, this is kind of like the most you'll get out of the Buddha of kind of motivating people like, yeah, you're going to regret it if you don't meditate. You'll never see him pressure people or being forceful or controlling or domineering. That's not how a Buddha or an enlightened being would function. They wouldn't teach that way. They don't use guilt, shame, and fear because the enlightened mental state is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear among other discontent feelings. So you can't use guilt, shame, and fear to motivate people if that's what your ultimate goal is to try to help them eliminate it. So this is the one teaching where you'll see the Buddha just kind of encouraging you a little bit and kind of saying, okay, you know, be sure you meditate. This other quote here that I just took out of a longer discourse is a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. The pot is your mind. The stand is your meditation practice. So if there's a pot that doesn't have a stand, it's easy to tip over. It'll fall over. So the same thing is your mind without a meditation practice is easy to tip over. It's easy to shake up. It's easy to experience discontentedness if you don't have this stand, which is the meditation practice. So the more you meditate, your stand will get wider and wider and wider. So if you're just starting to meditate, no big deal. You're starting out now. I'm assuming that you have no experience whatsoever in meditation. That's what I teach in this particular class because we're at the very beginning of the program. You might have a little dowel rod, you know, a little tiny pencil as a stand on your big pot. Well, that'll tip over really easily. But the more you dedicate to meditation and you're not complacent, this stand will get wider and wider and wider and it'll grow and now it'll become more and more stable. The mind will become more and more stable. This pot will become more and more stable because it has this wider and wider stand. So a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Another way to say that is a mind without a well-developed meditation practice is easy to tip over. It's easy to shake up. It's easy to become discontent. This next one that I have here, this is where the Buddha is actually pointing to breathing mindfulness meditation and saying how much of a priority it is. And he says it many different ways and many different discourses, but this is just one so that you don't have to believe me that the Buddha taught meditation or that breathing mindfulness meditation is so important. You can just hear the Buddha's words. You don't have to rely on my words. You can see it for yourself. And then once you learn it from the Buddha, then you can practice it and see for yourself how important it is for the condition of the mind. So here's what he says. He says, monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation. This is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So the Buddha is saying here, there's this one thing that's really a primary focus that's really beneficial. It's breathing mindfulness meditation. It's important that you don't look at his teachings in isolation and think that here what he's saying is, all you need is meditation. You know, he's not saying that all you need is meditation because if you look at all of his other teachings, he's sharing all these other teachings with you to help you understand the entire path. But as part of that path, he's pointing to breathing mindfulness meditation and explaining how much of a priority it is.
And when he says this leads exclusively to liberation, what liberation is, is freedom of the mind. The mind is free of strong feelings because those strong feelings are the thrill, the euphoria, the excitement, you know, the mind becomes shaken up, it's uncalm, or the anger, the sadness, the grief, the guilt, the shame, the fear, those are really strong feelings that your mind can be liberated from. It can experience this freedom of those. The mind can be eliminated from things like jealousy and resentment and all these other discontent feelings. And that's where he says here, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, meaning through your practice of meditation, you gain this experience. You gain this direct knowledge through sitting in meditation and training the mind actively in meditation. You will see the truth for yourself. You will have the experience of this direct knowledge of being able to see the truth for yourself that this meditation and all the other teachings lead to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. The Buddha says to enlightenment, to nibbana. Enlightenment and nibbana are the same thing. Nibbana is just the Pali word for enlightenment. The Sanskrit word is nirvana. But if you go back to the original source teachings of the Buddha, they're written in the Pali canon using the Pali language. So you'll see people who are using the Pali canon, the original most largest, most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings, use the Pali words rather than nirvana, dharma, and karma. They'll use nibbana, dhamma, and gamma. These are the Pali versions. But everything that I teach is in English, but occasionally I'll leave a Pali word in there because some other people use Pali occasionally, and you'll understand what that is. But by and large, I like to use English because then you can understand it right away. So when you understand this word nibbana is the same as enlightenment, then you'll be able to associate those two things. But that's why you see nibbana here is because it's the original source language of the largest, most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about what I shared related to the Buddha's words. This is just preparation to help us get in further into our class, but I was interested to share this with you. So once again, you don't have to believe me that the Buddha taught meditation or that breathing mindfulness meditation was such a priority and so important that here you can see the Buddha indeed taught about it. And if you'd like to go further into all the Buddha's words about meditation, the largest collection of these teachings are in the Pali Canon and volume six of the book series that I wrote, or maybe actually it's volume seven of the book series that I wrote, it's an extract of all the different teachings that the Buddha shared related to breathing mindfulness meditation. So the way you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put them in the comment section, our moderators will see those, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and a moderator will call on you and be sure you have a chance to ask any questions or follow-up questions. Hello, sure. Here it seems that uh, Gautama Buddha is addressing his teaching for monks, and sometimes he's addressing his teachings for uh, household practitioners. Does this mean that these are the only people that are addressed by these teachings? I mean, it's not for everyone. Uh, the Buddha oftentimes uh, addressed the monks because those are the people that had given up their household life and came to study and to learn. So he spent a lot of time with that ordained practitioners. He considered them 
to be more capable of attaining enlightenment because they had given up so much and they were kind of more dedicated. Household practitioners can attain enlightenment for sure, but they didn't have as much time during the lifetime of the Buddha. They were busy in the fields and working and doing things that we kind of take for granted in today's times where now we have these food systems built, we have work and economic systems, medical systems, things that they didn't have during the lifetime of the Buddha. So household practitioners were much busier during the lifetime of the Buddha than we are now. I would say that household practitioners are even more capable of attaining enlightenment today than during the time of Gautama Buddha because of the more available time that household practitioners have. But you'll see oftentimes the Buddha will refer to the monks and address the monks, but you can look at this as him saying student. So instead of meditate monks, you can think of this as meditate students. Do not be complacent lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Or the longer one where it says monks, there is this one thing. You could think of it as students. There is this one thing that when developed and cultivated. Because even though he was talking to the ordained practitioners in this particular case, there were probably household practitioners around or perhaps this particular teaching he just happened to be addressing to the monks. So any teachings that he shares with the monks, your mind functions exactly the same way as an ordained practitioner. The only difference is that an ordained practitioner has given up their household life. They've decided to enter into homelessness, put on a robe and live a very basic, very simple life. But the way that their mind functions is exactly the same as a household practitioner. This is why a household practitioner can get to enlightenment just as readily as an ordained practitioner. But there's more self-discipline that's needed for a household practitioner because ordained practitioners live in a monastery. They live amongst many other practitioners. They kind of have a built-in community, built-in support, and they tend to have a little bit more discipline because they don't have anything else going on in their life. Their whole goal is to attain enlightenment and practice to attain it. Where a household practitioner has family and friends and children and animals and a house and a car and a job and all these other things that occupy a household practitioner's time. But you can get to the point where you make enough space in your life for learning and practicing these teachings. And then you can see your way to enlightenment. And then our community here that we we have of many household practitioners, and there's a few ordained practitioners that learn with me as well, our community can support and encourage each other by coming together either online or in person in order to encourage and support each other on the path. But whenever you see monks, you can substitute in student and know that he's teaching you just as well as he's teaching the ordained practitioners. So as for these uh, Pali words, uh, now we are as household practitioners, we can attain enlightenment without being ordained as monks and nuns. Uh, should we also learn Pali language to attain enlightenment? The Pali language isn't needed in order to attain enlightenment. This is a language that's been around for a really long time. It's a language that the original source teachings were written into, and the Buddha may or may not have spoken in Pali. For a long time, we've thought that the Buddha spoke in Pali, but there's been some recent discoveries of texts that look like he might have spoken a different language that was a precursor to Pali. So the source text that we all refer back to is the Pali language. 
but it's no longer a spoken language today. There's very few people in the world that understand Pali, but they don't even agree on what individual words mean and what they don't mean because we've lost it. It's no longer a spoken language. It's no longer a practiced language. So there's not very many people that use it and converse with it. So we don't really necessarily understand it as well. We don't have very many people that understand it. And we don't necessarily agree on what all the words mean because of impermanence, things have changed. If you decided to learn Pali, that would be a huge feat to be able to actually learn Pali. Some people spend, you know, 5, 10, 20 years learning Pali. If you did that, then after you learn Pali, now you would have to learn the Buddhist teachings in Pali. And then if you needed help, you would have to find somebody who also knows Pali, which the number of people that know Pali is very minimal. So your ability to get help is very minimal. And then after you find that person, then you still have to practice the teachings and get the results. So you're putting this enormous hindrance and this enormous obstacle in front of you, in my opinion, by having to first learn Pali, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Then you have to find other people that really know it well and that are on the same page to be able to help you and dedicated to help you. Then you have to actually learn the teachings in Pali. Then you have to practice them and get the results. So if you're trying to get to enlightenment in this lifetime, in my opinion, this isn't the way to do it because you're putting so many roadblocks in front of you, so many obstacles. So this is why I don't teach in Pali. I teach in English because if you're speaking English, either natively or as a second language, once you learn the teachings in English, you can start practicing right away. And you can start getting results right away rather than spending the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years learning Pali first, then another 3, 4, 5, 10 years learning the teachings, then actually getting help, then actually practicing your kind of 30 years, 40 years from being able to experience the results. Where somebody who's learning in a native language or even a language that's a second language like English you can start learning and getting results right away because you understand it. You've eliminated an enormous obstacle by not looking at Pali and just going right into the English because our translations nowadays in English are very superb, very high quality translations. There's no reason to go back to Pali. There's a lot of people who did learn Pali. They did that effort. They did that work to learn it and translate it into English. And now that they've done that work, as a large worldwide community, we no longer have to go back and translate from Pali because all the translations are basically done. There's other people who've done that work. Now all we need to do is share the teachings in English so that people can immediately start learning, immediately get help from a wider and wider community of practitioners, and then get the results. And this is where people can really see the improvement within a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. They can really see the progress of the condition of their mind as discontentedness is diminishing because they're learning in a language that they can immediately understand. And then by learning in English, we can share these teachings internationally worldwide. The Buddha's goal was to share his teachings worldwide, but he knew that it wouldn't happen during his lifetime because he didn't necessarily share this, but I can share it, is that you know, the language of Pali wasn't spoken worldwide during his life or whatever language he spoke. 
human travel to be able to travel around the world wasn't so easy during his lifetime. There wasn't an international language. There wasn't the ability to travel. Nowadays, we have this international language. The whole world can learn in English. And then more and more English speakers will be able to share these teachings. We can send information from Thailand to Egypt in a snap of a finger, or from Thailand to Antarctica in the snap of a finger, or anywhere else that has internet access, where the Buddha couldn't do that. Only the people that lived close to him and were in his presence could actually learn. So now we have these conditions such that Human travel is very easy. Information travel through the internet is very easy. And we have this international language. So now the humanity has evolved to a point where we're kind of ripe and ready to receive these teachings in English and now be shared worldwide so that the whole world can experience enlightenment gradually over time. And this is the time that these unique things have come together, that they didn't come together during the lifetime of the Buddha, but they've come together now. And by us all learning and practicing in English, it provides a wider and wider community of practitioners and teachers that can now help the world to experience enlightenment. Well, would you kindly elaborate more on the what was the Buddha referring to when he said that freedom from strong feelings? What feelings exactly he was referring to? This is the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is the conditioned feelings. So the happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria that the mind experiences, this is because of craving, desire, attachment. If you have a craving to get a high salary of 100,000 US dollars a year, and you have this craving, this yearning, this longing to get it, and then your boss gives you $100,000 a year, Oh, you're going to get so excited. You're going to get so elated. But in that situation, the mind is uncalm. You're not practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're not having concentration. So therefore, you can't access wisdom. The mind is shaken up. So these conditioned pleasant feelings are harmful to the mind. An enlightened mind is going to experience unconditioned joy or unconditioned happiness. You could think of it that way, where the mind is just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You wake up all day long and you go to bed, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the enlightened mind. So these strong feelings are pleasant feelings that are really strong because of craving, desire, attachment. The painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, jealousy, resentment. These are all strong feelings that you can eliminate when you eliminate craving, desire, attachment, the mind holding on. You know, likewise, neither painful nor pleasant. You know, you can eliminate those through eliminating craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing all discontentedness. And that's one of the beauties about the Buddhist teachings is that you don't need to go out and learn 50 different meditations or 10 different meditations even, or even six different meditations. He only taught two primary meditations, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, because these address two of the three significant problems in the mind. We're going to talk later in this program about craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. These are the three major problems that the Buddha discovered in the mind. And then that boils down into the 10 fetters, which we're going to be talking about in about two and a half weeks. These pollutions of mind or these taints or these fetters that we call them, fetter is like a ball and chain, the Buddha discovered these pollutions 
And the same thing that's causing stress and anxiety is the same thing that's causing happiness, excitement, elation, conditioned feelings, or shyness, or resentment, or jealousy. It's craving, desire, attachment. So for example, the same reason why people cry and are sad at weddings is the same reason why they're cry and sad at a person's death. It's craving, desire, attachment. The mind's craving permanence. So at a wedding, the parents or the people there are craving to hold on to this person permanently. And now that they're getting married, they're moving on with their life. And the people at the wedding are crying and upset sometimes, depending on how the people's minds are. And then the same thing at death. If somebody dies, the mind's holding on, craving permanence. So the mind's sad or shaken up and crying and grieving. So when you're learning something like breathing mindfulness meditation, this handles all discontentedness because the cause of discontentedness, whether it's stress, anxiety, or sadness, or sorrowfulness, or any of these others, they're all being caused by the same exact problem. So you don't need to learn one meditation for stress, one meditation for anxiety, one meditation for guilt, one meditation for shame, one meditation for jealousy. You don't have to do that because the underlying cause is exactly the same for all these discontent feelings. So that's why you can just focus on something like breathing mindfulness meditation, develop your practice very deep. So rather than having 20, 30, 50 different meditations that you just practice at a surface level, you're not really that skilled in them. You can actually deepen your practice by focusing on just the two primary styles of meditation that the Buddha taught. So that's why here at the beginning of this group learning program, we're doing a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. And then after that, we're going to do a four-part series on loving kindness meditation. These are the two primary styles of meditation that the Buddha taught because it addresses craving, which is breathing mindfulness meditation addresses that, and loving kindness meditation addresses the anger. And then the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, that gets addressed by acquiring wisdom through independent verification of the teachings. So the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha put this package of teachings together in a very intentional and thoughtful and wise way. He spoke very concise. He spoke very precise. And when you understand this very precise way that he taught in the words, using his words, and you see this package and this path that he laid out, it's very clear when you understand it and as you develop it. But if we divert and we change a Buddha's words or we just you know, don't have a way of independently verifying the truth and we just go with whatever somebody told us rather than going back to the original source, which is the original words of the Buddha. If you don't use the words of the Buddha as your source, then you're just believing whatever somebody tells you, perhaps. And if you're trying to practice 5, 8, 10, 20 different meditations, you're not practicing what the Buddha taught because he actually only taught a total of four meditations. There's two primaries that you need, and then there's two kind of specialized meditations that not everybody will need. So by doing your practice this way, where you focus on the words of the Buddha and you see what he actually taught, and you don't practice the modifications that came after his death, you just focus on what he actually taught. Now you can get really deep and really focused because a Buddha's words are going to illuminate this path to enlightenment. It's like they're putting lights on the side of the path like these flashing lights to show you where the path is because a Buddha's wisdom is so deep that they're able to 
clearly explain the path so clearly that another person wouldn't have that same level of clarity. So when we go back to the words of the Buddha, you can see what he actually taught, which is, in this case, to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and then you can just focus on that rather than spreading yourself thin with so many different techniques, which the Buddha probably didn't even teach and would just kind of veer off the path. It would take you in the opposite direction of where you really need to be. It's a words of the Buddha. He's the discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. And that's who you would like to learn with. If you're interested in building an automobile, you'd be interested to study with the inventor of the automobile. Who invented the automobile? Let me study with that person, right? The Buddha is the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path. So when you go to his words, you're essentially studying with the person who invented the path to enlightenment. Not truly, but that's essentially what it is. The Buddha didn't invent the path to enlightenment, but he surely explained it in a way that no other person can. Well, is there a source for these uh, original teachings of the Buddha that one can download? So what I suggest people to do is download the book series that I share because the Pali Canon itself, it's organized, or it's not even organized, it's actually in 45 volumes of books that are very thick like this. This is about maybe six centimeters, maybe four inches thick. And there's 45 of these, right? There's 45 of these books. It would take you years upon years upon years to learn these and read them and then actually start practicing them. And there's a lot of repetition the way they wrote it down. And it's not really organized in any particular way. So with 45 of these, and without any organization, with lacking the organization, you'll find it very difficult to put the teachings together in a way that the mind can understand. So this book series that I wrote, the 13 books, it organizes the teachings and extracts the teachings out of these 45 books. It extracts the most important teachings that you need and gives it to you on a silver platter. And it says, here you go. This is the teachings to help you get to enlightenment. So it's got the words of the Buddha, it's got a reference back to the original source teachings, and then it's got my explanations to help you. The Buddha spoke very clearly. I say explanations, but in reality, what it is, is it's my guidance, my help to show you the path, continuing in the tradition of what the Buddha shared. But his words are very clear, very direct. And if you download that book series, it's buddhadailywisdom.com. You can click on the button and download the whole book series if you like. You can also order it on Amazon through printed versions or Kindle versions. Or you can just download the file and go print it yourself because I give away all these resources for free. You don't have to actually pay. But some people, you know, they like to have a nice, you know, bound book that you have a nice binding. And if you'd like that, there's Amazon that you can order them from. Or if your country can do that work, you can just take the file and go to a print shop and just have it printed yourself. I don't need any profit from the book. I'm just interested in sharing these teachings with as many people as are interested to learn them. Hey, thanks, sir. No more questions for now. All right. So let's move on to some things that I would like to share with you just to get us started in our class today. That was the words of the Buddha. But now, starting our what I have to share with you, 
I don't like to assume that people have the same understanding or the same definition for certain words. So when I teach something new, I will start with a definition to make sure that you're on the same page with me about how I'm describing a certain thing. So here we're going to start with some meditation basics just to help you get situated with developing your meditation practice. And I'm going to start with a definition of what meditation is because I'm not interested in assuming that your understanding and your definition of meditation is the same as mine. So when I use the word meditation, what I'm referring to is this technique to actively train the mind during a dedicated independent purposeful training session to eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of mind in the positions of seated lying standing or walking this is really important it's a dedicated purposeful training session where you're actively working to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities or arise or cultivate or develop various wholesome qualities in the mind And you're doing this in one of the four positions, either seated, lying, standing, or walking. All too often, the way that some people think about meditation is they think that you can exercise and meditate, or you can walk the dog and meditate, or you can garden and meditate, or you can go drive and meditate. Some people think that they can meditate all day long, but this isn't actually meditation. You can practice mindfulness or awareness of mind. That's what mindfulness means, is awareness of mind. You can have awareness of the mind and you need to have that in order to get to enlightenment. You have to practice the four foundations of mindfulness, which we're gonna cover later in this program. But you can't do meditation. You can't do a dedicated, active, purposeful training session, eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities while you're exercising or while you're walking the dog or or gardening or driving. In fact, when you get to the Eightfold Path of right concentration, you'll see in the words of the Buddha, he talks about practicing singleness of mind. Is just focusing on one thing at a time. That's how you actually train the mind. Not only in meditation, focusing on the breath, singleness of mind, but outside of meditation. All day long, you need to be training the mind and focusing on just one thing at a time. So if you're gardening, if you're down on your knees and you've got your hands in dirt and you're gardening, you should just be gardening. You shouldn't be gardening, listening to music and talking on the phone at the same time. This is not allowing the mind to practice singleness of mind. The mind's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. So sometimes people say, I'm going to go exercise and meditate, or I'm going to go walk the dog and meditate, or I'm going to go garden and meditate. While these things are are beneficial for your life to exercise, walk the dog, garden, go driving, and all these other things, these are wonderful hobbies and wonderful things for you to do as part of your life but they're not meditation. If all you ever did was went out and walked your dog and you thought you were meditating while you're walking your dog, you're not gonna experience enlightenment. Or if you thought that driving was meditation and I share about how to build up your meditation practice and you thought all you had to do was go out and drive your car and that's actually training the mind, you wouldn't be able to ever experience enlightenment because you're not actually meditating. You're driving the car or you're gardening or you're walking the dog. Again, all very helpful things that you might enjoy as part of this life. But in terms of meditation, and when I say the word meditation, remember dedicated, independent, purposeful training session where you're actively training the mind 
to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. And I'm going to share with you today, based on the meditations that the Buddha taught and the meditations that I share, which are the meditations that the Buddha taught, I'm going to share with you what are you eliminating during that meditation and what are you cultivating? Because you need to know the why. You need to understand what is the purpose of this meditation. Because if you're in meditation and you're doing a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session, well, you need to know what the purpose is so that you can accomplish the goal. If you don't know what the purpose is, you wouldn't be able to accomplish the goal. So I'm going to share that with you as part of today's class, ensuring that you understand what you're eliminating from the mind and what you're cultivating. In this way, you know what the purpose is and you can actually accomplish the goal. If you don't know your purpose, you can't get to the goal. So understand that these other activities, while all fine and well, they're not actually meditation. You're going to need to develop a dedicated meditation practice outside of exercising, walking the dog and these other things. You're also going to need a meditation teacher. Now, if you'd like me to be your teacher, I'm more than pleased to be your teacher. I teach online. I teach in person, different places in the world, here in Thailand. You can schedule one-on-one sessions with me. All this is offered to you openly and freely. We can meet in Zoom. We can meet in person. You know, So I can be your meditation teacher, but you're going to need a meditation teacher. If you were out there trying to meditate on your own without the guidance and support of a teacher, you can actually work your mind into a lot of problems. I've encountered a few students that have contacted me after one year or two years of attempting to meditate on their own by just watching YouTube videos or podcasts or reading a book, and they work their mind into a lot of trouble. One particular case that I can share with you is this doctor who was a practicing doctor, started meditating on his own through YouTube videos and stuff like this, and he eventually developed what we would refer to as OCD, where he has repetitive thoughts. So obsessed is the mind that he can't even actually work anymore. He had to leave his career. He just stays at home. He has suicidal thoughts all day long. He sleeps for sometimes 18, 20 hours a day. His mind is in a really difficult condition. He can't even take in information in order to improve the condition of the mind because he was out there meditating all by himself, trying to do what the videos shared, and he didn't have a teacher to reach out to and get support and get help when he needed it. Only a Buddha would be able to actually attain enlightenment on their own without the support of any teachers or any guides. So every single individual is going to need the support of a teacher and guides in order to progress along this path. So a Buddha hasn't arisen based on what the world currently knows since 2,500 years ago. They're a very unique individual that attains enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides and you would need that support in order to get to enlightenment so you would need a meditation teacher and that's why i share these teachings make all the resources available for free and then i allow myself to be available to you as well through personal guidance and asking questions online in our facebook group through sending private messages and through these classes because I know you're going to need the guidance. If you're out there by yourself, it can be very dangerous, uh, essentially. You don't need to be scared or fearful of that, but you're going to encounter things. And even if the answer you get back from me is, yes, that's completely normal, you know, continue forward, no big deal, that gives you some reassurance, that gives you some confidence that you're on the right path. So you're going to need somebody that you have 
a bit of a relationship with that you can reach out to and get help. The Buddha taught four different meditation positions because as we talked about on Sunday, there's the universal truth of impermanence, meaning these things aren't permanent. You can't use just one meditation position your entire life. It's impossible. You might learn in seated position, but what happens when you have a motorbike accident and you can't cross your legs and you can't even really sit in a chair anymore and you're hooked up to an IV in a hospital, right? You're laying in a bed. You need lying position. Or uh, what happens when you are maybe used to standing position and maybe your legs get amputated for one reason or another. You can no longer stand perhaps, right? And now you need to know seated position or something else. So these four positions are there for a reason. Each one has different purposes. We typically teach in seated position to get you started, but then these other positions play an important role in your meditation practice. And you should develop these other positions for yourself because you're probably going to need them at some point because you can't just have one meditation position that you stay in for your whole life. You might be able to get on the ground and cross your legs now, but what happens when you're 70, 80, 90 years old? Are you still going to be able to do that? The body's impermanent, so you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to need to sit in a chair. You're going to need to lie or stand or walk. So let me share with you some ways that you can use these different meditation positions, but then don't believe me. You go out and practice and develop for yourself and see the truth for yourself. So I suggest people learn in the seated position. It's the best position to be in. This is where you're either sitting on the floor cross leg or you're on a chair or something like that, maybe with your feet flat on the floor or cross at your ankles, where the lower body is comfortable and stable, the hands and arms are in your lap, and the upper body is erect. I'm going to teach you this as part of our meditation practice. This is like the way that I meditate. This is my standard go-to practice in terms of a position. Now, somebody else might have a different position, but I use seated position the most. However, when there were times when I was training my mind that as I was in seated position, I couldn't sit because I got in a motorbike accident and I, I was in a bed hooked up to an IV. So I used lying position during those times. And then there's times in lying position or seated position where the mind's falling asleep in the past. So I needed standing position to stand up and not allow the mind to fall asleep. Or I might need walking position in order to ensure that I don't fall asleep in meditation. Sometimes you might be in seated position and your mind's overactive and very anxious. It's got a lot of energy. So you might choose to switch to walking position. This is really good to get the energy out because you're actually slowly walking and you're not just stable. Maybe you might be ready to meditate, but your mind is overactive and the last thing you're thinking about is sitting down to meditate. So walking meditation can be helpful for that to keep you awake and to keep the mind to the point where it's attentive and alert while you're getting all the energy out. And you might even combine these. You might do a meditation session where you start in seated position, but five minutes into it, 10 minutes into it, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm falling asleep. Let me switch to standing or walking. Or you might be in seated position and realize your mind's overactive and you might switch to walking position. Or you might be getting ready to meditate and you start with walking position and you start walking and doing walking meditation. And then 
after walking for 20, 30 minutes, you might say, you know what, let me try to do some seated. So you can actually switch your meditation position. And if you're feeling any pain at any point during your meditation position, you shouldn't just grin and bear it. There's no certificates and no awards given out for someone who just breathes through the pain. This is something that the Buddha taught as part of his practice. When he first started on his journey, he was doing very painful things to the body. And it's not about being in pain and trying to overcome physical pain. It's about training the mind. So your meditation position shouldn't be luxurious. It shouldn't be, you know, super luxurious, but it shouldn't be painful either. It should be in the middle where you're comfortable, not luxurious, not painful, but comfortable. So if at any time you feel that the body's painful, you should shift your body and shift position in order to get comfortable. Or if you feel like the position you're taking is too luxurious, maybe you're like on a plush sofa with lots of pillows and blankets and everything like this, and your mind's like falling asleep. Okay, that's because you're not in the middle. You need to find that comfortable position, not painful and not luxurious, but comfortable. And this is the way that I use these four different positions. But you shouldn't believe what I say. You need to work with these different positions and see what works best for you and and then be comfortable interchanging them because you're going to need them at different times. If you're just starting with your meditation practice, I suggest you start with seated, build that up for a few months, and then at some point switch to another position so your mind doesn't get attached and holding on to one particular meditation position. Let me see what questions you guys have here. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. So as for the meditation positions, is any of these among these four positions is better than the other or gives better results or maybe faster results? No, um, there's nothing in the path to enlightenment that you should be trying to get fast results. If you're trying to hurry up and get to enlightenment, you're not understanding enlightenment because it's about slowing the mind down, coming into the present moment and gradually training the mind. So we're not in a hurry to get to enlightenment, but also these body positions are going to be based on each individual because of impermanence. Everybody's going to experience something different. So that's why I say for me, seated is my go-to position. That's probably where I do 80, 90% of my meditation. Now it's essentially a hundred percent of my meditation. Unless I'm teaching, I'll teach walking meditation, I'll teach standing, I'll teach lying. But when I was deeply training the mind and needed to get to where I am today in my practice, I was using all of these interchangeably. I was using a lot of seated, but I was also using a lot of walking. I was also using lying. I was even using standing sometimes. So for me, seated is my go-to position. But for somebody else, it might be lying or it might be standing or it might be walking. And this is where you're on your own independent journey. You've got to find what is working for you. And that's where you have a teacher and why a teacher is so important. Because if you're developing a certain position and you're having challenges or difficulties, you would like to reach out to the teacher and let them know what those challenges or difficulties are. And then they're going to have solutions for you to help you out. And then you can then practice those things and see what's working best for you. So for me as a meditation teacher and as a teacher of the Buddhist teachings, I'm not trying to force everybody to do things my way in the way that works for me because I know your body and your mind is different. Instead, my goal is to help you find what's comfortable for you 
because what's comfortable for me might not be comfortable for you. So my goal isn't to try to force everybody to do it my way, but instead to work with you skillfully and provide you guidance as you seek guidance in order to help you find that comfortable position. And then once you find those comfortable positions, don't get attached to it because it's going to need to change at some point in your life. You're not going to be able to permanently reside in the same meditation posture and position your whole life. It's not possible. So let me double check my understanding. In meditation, we're training the mind by cultivating and eliminating various qualities. And we are training the body in these four positions, right? Yes and no. When you're in meditation and the entire path to enlightenment, you're training the mind. You should always think that you're training the mind. What you're going to hear me share today is the mind is the boss, the body's the employee. So essentially the body follows whatever's in the mind. So you shouldn't think about this as you're training the body. So you see some of the materials that I share, the Buddha's in full lotus position where he's got his feet turned in and his soles of his feet turned up. Not everybody can do that. And if you thought that everybody should do that and you're craving permanence and you're trying to force the body into those positions, your hip, your knees, your ankles, they're going to be painful and you're focusing on the wrong place. The goal isn't to train your body. The goal is to train the mind. So if you're comfortable sitting in a chair or if you're older and you're in a wheelchair or you're in a bed, some people are in a bed. They actually can't sit because of the body and their health condition. They haven't been able to sit. Maybe they're bedridden, right? So you're not training the body. What you're doing is training the mind and you can do that from either the seated, lying, standing, or walking positions. And you're going to need to use these at different times in your life, but always understand that you're training the mind. That's the goal of the path to enlightenment. And the body, you're just trying to get that in a comfortable position where it almost like it doesn't matter. Like it's there, the body's there, but you put your lower body, your hands and arms, and your upper torso in a position where they're just completely don't matter so that you can go inside, you can go into the mind and really evaluate the mind and really fine tune and hone your mind. That's what you're really focusing on. So if you can get the body to a point where it doesn't matter, there's some cases in meditation where your body pretty much becomes numb. You might experience your feet and your hands and arms just becoming numb like they don't even exist. And that's what you ultimately would like to get to where you're body almost doesn't matter like it's not even there you're just focusing on the mind and training the mind thanks sir that's good Miranda. yes sir on uh, facebook Ipnotha asks sir is it necessary to practice meditation in outside of the house or in a forest or a different place yes i suggest you move your meditation practice around but not until you get well established and biplob's been studying with me for a while so you should be able to start moving around but i suggest you spend a good solid four weeks building up your breathing mindfulness meditation like i'm sharing in this program and then a solid four building up your loving kindness meditation but then it's going to take you three six months maybe a year to really fully build up your practice and maybe even beyond that But when you're observing that you're pretty settled, maybe meditating in your bedroom each day, or if you have a special meditation room or you meditate in the same spot regularly, that's really good when you first get started. 
but your mind's going to get attached to that. It's going to want to hold on to that. And you're not interested in your mind holding on to anything. So after you get fairly established and you're noticing that you're getting the technique down pretty well, you should then move. If you're meditating in your bedroom regularly, move to the living room. And then after it gets content and peaceful meditating there, you can move outside or you can meditate at a temple or you can go to a friend's house or you can go to a park. You would like to move the mind around so that it doesn't grab on and hold on to only being able to meditate in your bedroom because you're not going to be able to meditate in your bedroom permanently. And in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to meditate regularly every single day. So if you get hooked and attached to meditating just in your bedroom and that's it, you're not always going to be at your bedroom. You're going to be moving around. You're going to be traveling around. You're going to be staying in different places. So you would like to kind of mix it up so that your mind doesn't get used to just meditating in one particular place. That's what it's going to want to do. But you're trying to introduce some impermanence so it mixes it up and then the mind doesn't get hooked to meditating in just one place or one body position. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Well, no more question for now. All right. So let's move to the next part of what I was going to share with you, which is the different types of meditations. And I'll just share with you a little bit on these because this is kind of a summary slide just to help you understand what you're eliminating from the mind and what you're cultivating. Here in today's class and over the next four sessions, we're focusing on breathing mindfulness meditation because this is the primary style of meditation that the Buddha taught. And as I shared, it's because this meditation eliminates craving, desire, attachment. The primary problem that the Buddha discovered that causes discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. There's ignorance that is the number one thing that's keeping everything locked into the unenlightened state, and you're transforming that with wisdom. But one of the first things that you learn as part of this path to enlightenment is that it's craving, desire, attachment that's really causing all the discontentedness. So that's why the primary form of meditation that the Buddha taught is breathing mindfulness meditation because that's the primary practice that eliminates craving, desire, attachment. When the mind is longing and yearning and clinging and holding on to things, what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is you're training it to let go so that it no longer holds on and causes itself discontentedness. What you're cultivating in breathing mindfulness meditation is you're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind. This path to enlightenment is to purify the mind. You're purifying the mind. You're cleaning out all the pollution of the mind. But you wouldn't be able to accomplish that goal if you didn't have awareness of what's the unwholesome things in the mind. And what are the wholesome things in the mind? Because things that are wholesome, you would like to support those, encourage those, and don't allow them to fade. So where you observe with mindfulness that there's unwholesomeness and wholesome things in your daily life, if you're going about your day and some jealousy pops up into the mind, you need mindfulness or awareness of mind to be able to observe that jealousy so that you can cut it off and let it go and get it out of there. So what you're developing in your breathing mindfulness meditation is you're developing this awareness of mind, becoming aware of what's in the mind. All too often, we're using this word mindfulness in modern language to mean careful. Someone might say, you know, carry your water mindfully. You know, if you trip and fall, someone's like, oh, that wasn't very mindful. But what people are talking about in those cases, what I see oftentimes is people are substituting the word careful for mindfulness. 
But when you understand what the Buddha taught about mindfulness, particularly the four foundations of mindfulness, which we'll cover in another class, then you understand and you can come to this generalized understanding that mindfulness is awareness of mind. And you're going to need that in order to train the mind. And you're training it to be in the present moment with concentration or singleness of mind. This is part of the Eightfold Path that we're going to talk about in a couple of classes. You'll understand mindfulness and concentration more. But in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're focusing on a fixed object. You're focusing on the breath. The breath is the present moment. But the mind is going to want to go to the past or it's going to want to go to the future or it's going to have all these thoughts and ideas that are coming into the mind. And where you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. Because this mind is like a wild animal. It wants to run around the forest. But you're trying to tame this mind so that you can have mental discipline. You can have control over the mind. So when the mind wants to be this wild animal and run to the past, run to the future, have all of these thoughts and ideas, you're cutting that off and letting it go and coming back to the breath. The breath is the focal point. That's the present moment. That's where you're developing your concentration, focusing with singleness of mind and developing this awareness of mind. And then these other ones, we're going to cover these in other classes. But just understand there's different goals for each meditation. It's breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and loving kindness, which are the two primary styles. And then the other two are just used in specialized situations where someone's having trouble with sexual cravings and they're having challenges and they need help to eliminate sexual cravings. There's a specialized meditation for that. And then there's some people that might need the meditation to realize non-self. And there's a specialized meditation for that. Everyone has to realize non-self in order to attain enlightenment. This is the elimination of personal existence view. But not everybody's going to necessarily need this particular meditation. But it really does help to get you over and beyond personal existence view to realize non-self. So let me see if you guys have any questions on anything that I've shared here. Remember, you can just do that through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or electronically raise your hand in Zoom. Seems that there is no question for this time, teacher. All right. So now let's start with how you would conduct a meditation session. Just kind of some starting points and some things to consider. This is captured in chapter 11 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. If you've read that chapter or you've explored that chapter, you will see the teachings that I share in that chapter related to meditation. And I'm just going to go through and teach you one by one, but you can also read it there because it's in a lot more detail in the actual book. It's important to understand that the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. So anything that you're experiencing or thinking about in the mind, the body is going to follow. So if you have anger that comes up in the mind and you're like, I just want to hit that person, it's going to first come up in the mind as anger because that's the boss. And now the body, you're going to punch the person and of course cause a lot of harm. But that's why the body is the employee. The body can't do anything by itself. It has to have the mind to be the boss. And that's why we're training the mind because the mind is the boss and the body's going to follow. So the speech that you have, that's a bodily action. I mean, it's not a part of right action or a bodily action, but right speech and having speech, we have to move the physical body in order for that to occur. But we can't have speech if we don't have 
a mind. We have to have this mind and having it well-trained and having purity of mind and having a well-developed mind will now allow you to speak. So it's all of what's in the mind that you're going to see in the body and you're going to hear in the person's voice. So it's important to always remember that you're training the mind because that's the boss and you experience everything through the mind and the body is going to follow. But in order to train the mind, you kind of have to appease the employee. You have to get the employee to take you to go see the boss. And if you come in and you treat the employees with a lot of painful things, if you're very harsh and aggressive with the employees, they're not going to take you to go see the boss. So if you put your body in these painful positions, all the mind's going to experience is pain, 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 pain. You're not going to be able to train the boss. You've got to get to the boss. You've got to train the boss. So the body shouldn't be in a painful position because the employee is not going to want to take you to go see the boss. But also if the employee is too luxurious and they're too indulgent in these luxuries, the employee is going to be complacent and it's not going to want to take you to go see the boss. So that's why you've got to have the body in this comfortable position. Not painful, not luxurious, but comfortable and then it'll take you to go see the boss. So when I teach you the body positioning, then you'll understand why I teach it to be comfortable, not painful and not luxurious, because the body's got to be comfortable in order to take you to go see the boss. If the employees are luxurious, they're not going to take you to go see the boss. And if they're painful, if the employees are experiencing pain, they're not going to take you to go see the boss. The Buddha used in his teachings, he said, prior to meditation, you should set up mindfulness in front of you. He says this in multiple teachings, set up mindfulness in front of you. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. It's so important that you remember that awareness of mind. That's mindfulness. There's the four foundations of mindfulness, but we're not discussing those. Just at this point, think about mindfulness as awareness of mind. And what he means by setting up mindfulness in front of you before meditation is that you don't just walk in and plop down and start meditating. You're not going to get as much benefit. You need to start bringing this awareness of mind to the mind so that you start getting aware of what's going on in the mind as you ease down into meditation. You're going to see in about two months from now that I use chanting as a way to ease the mind into meditation and start developing this awareness of mind and this awareness of breath and ultimately to get more benefit out of the meditation. That's how I choose to set up mindfulness in front of me. But you might not choose to chant. Chanting isn't a requirement in order to get to enlightenment. But setting up mindfulness in front of you is a requirement to get to enlightenment. You're going to need to do that in order to get the mind in a position where it's ready to meditate. Because when it's time to meditate and you've made the decision to meditate, your mind's either going to want to run or it's going to want to fight you. I know you have experienced this where you've been on Facebook or you've been watching TV or you're surfing the Internet and you get the thought and you're like, I should go meditate. Nah, I'm going to keep surfing the Internet or I'm going to keep scrolling on Facebook, right? The mind wants to run or it wants to fight you. So what you're doing is you're developing this practice where you're easing the mind into meditation by setting up mindfulness in front of you. You might do a little bit of stretching. Some people like yoga. Some people like to do prayer. It's not part of the Buddhist teachings, but some people like to do that to ease them into meditation. I like to do chanting. I also do a little bit of prayer as well, but I have a certain reason why I do that. 
And what I'm doing there is I'm developing and bringing the mind's awareness so that now when I ease into meditation, then the awareness is already there. So I'm getting benefit from like the first breath. As soon as I breathe in the first breath in meditation, I'm getting benefit right away. Whereas if you came from outside and you plop down in the meditation, it might take you 5, 10, 15 minutes to get settled before you start getting benefit. So if you set up mindfulness in front of you, you can get benefit right away. So have something that you're doing. And I'll teach you chanting as a way to help you and you can see how that works for you. And then you might have other things that you decide to do to kind of ease the mind into meditation. This third one here, the time, frequency, and schedule of meditation. This is important for you to understand that you can't have a fixed schedule of meditation. It's impossible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if you come to this program with, I'm going to meditate at 3.30 a.m. every day because that's the perfect time to meditate, or I'm going to meditate at 8 a.m. every day, it's impossible for you to do this because of the universal truth of impermanence. You wouldn't be able to do that because there's going to be some days where you can't meditate at 8 a.m. It's going to be 8.30 or it's going to be 9 or or some days you might have something really big happen and you can't even meditate at all in the morning for some reason. So don't get locked into this fixed schedule of meditation. What I suggest you do is you have anchor points. You like to meditate in the morning and you'd like to meditate in the evening. Two to three sessions per day. That's what I recommend. The Buddha meditated three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. He says it very clear in his teachings that that's when he meditated, morning, midday, and evening. But he didn't even have a watch 2,500 years ago to meditate at exactly the same time. So this is where when you hear somebody share that you should meditate at exactly 3.30 in the morning every single day then you know that this isn't the path to enlightenment because the Buddha didn't even have a watch during his lifetime. How could he be able to tell that it was 3.30 a.m. in the morning? It's not possible to get that exact precision. And with the universal truth of impermanence, you can't meditate at exactly the same time. So you pick these anchor points like morning and midday or morning, midday, and evening if you would like to do three sessions or morning and evening and you gradually ramp up your practice to two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more. That's what you'd like to build up to. But you're going to start wherever you start. If you start at five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, then that's fine. That's where you start. But gradually work towards building up two to three sessions a day for 30 minutes or more. That's what you'd like to gradually build up to. That's where you're gonna see the most benefit. If you're just meditating once a day to start with, okay, that's fine, but you're ultimately gonna need to get to a minimum of twice a day in order for you to get to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with just one meditation a day. Likewise, if you're starting with five or 10 minutes per session, That's fine. That's where you're starting from. But you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment, which is five or 10 minutes of meditation per session. You're going to need to get to 30 minutes or more. That's where the real changes are taking place when you get up to that level of time. But understand that you can't meditate permanently, right? It's not possible. When I got into my motorbike accident two or three years ago, I had a cracked rib and I was having trouble breathing. There was about 10 days where I couldn't meditate. So you just have to accept that and know that that's impermanent. That injury to the physical body was impermanent. I knew that I couldn't meditate because it was hard for me to breathe. And I knew that this cracked rib would heal. 
and I knew that I would get back to my meditation practice once I was healed. But if in that situation I was craving meditation, I was craving and desiring to do it every single day, then I would be discontent for those 10 days where my body was incapable of meditating. So you can't even crave something wholesome like meditation. You pursue it as a goal, an objective, or an interest. But if you hold it too tight, you're not going to experience this liberation or this peace and this joy of enlightenment. But also if you were complacent and you didn't do meditation there, you wouldn't experience liberation either. So you're not interested in holding it real tight, but you're not interested in being complacent. So you walk the middle way where you understand you need to meditate regularly and you have these anchor points, but you're not so fixated on it that when you experience a situation where you can't meditate for one reason or another, your mind doesn't become discontent. I've also had situations where I've started meditation and three to five minutes after I started, my son would walk in and say, dad, I need you to take me to school. And I was like, oh yeah, I thought your mom was taking you to school today. He said, yeah, me too. But mom's left already. She's not here. I'm like, all right, well, I'll take you to school. Right. And then when I came back from taking him to school, I, I did my meditation where in that situation, if I was holding on to meditation and craving it so much that when he came in and let me know that he needed to go to school, I would have been discontent. But instead, I just realized, OK, there's this impermanence here. We thought that mom was going to take him to school. She wasn't able to. So it looks like I'm up. I need to take him to school. So let me go take him to school. So you've got to understand that there's going to be impermanence related to your meditation practice. You can have this time and frequency and schedule, this kind of idea, this kind of general method that you'd like to meditate morning and evening or morning, midday and evening, two to three times a day. And you're generally working towards 30 minutes or more. But you realize that these things are impermanent. You're not always going to be able to do it. So you got to develop your meditation practice where there's some consistency. Your enlightenment isn't going to be determined based on whether you miss meditation today. Your enlightenment is going to be determined based on if you miss meditation today, what do you do next? Do you keep missing meditation for the next several weeks, the next several months, and now you become complacent and you haven't meditated for three years? Or you miss meditation today and then you get right back into it tomorrow. Is that what you do? That's how your meditation is going to progress and that's what you need in order to get to enlightenment. Your enlightenment is going to be determined is are you able to meditate consistently and regularly on an ongoing basis over the next several years, realizing there's going to be times where you miss meditation. But once you miss, what do you do next? Do you allow the mind to become complacent or do you get right back into it and keep going? During meditation, you might experience sleepiness. This is common, especially when people first get started. If your mind is very polluted, you might experience sleepiness during meditation. When you experience this, you can either just sleep and get some sleep because you need more rest, or you can change positions. Like you heard me share where you might move to a walking position or a standing position. But understand that sleepiness is normal, particularly for the first six months or so, you might experience a lot of sleepiness because once you start training the mind, 
the mind's going to start performing more optimally and you might not have been sleeping well for many, many years. And now the mind's like, oh, thank goodness you're feeding me. I've been so thirsty. Thank you for giving me this training. And now it might actually start being interested to sleep. So get your sleep if that's what you need and realize that sometimes if you get sleepy, you just need to get some rest or change positions if you'd like to continue your meditation. During meditation, you might experience physical sensations like an itching sensation. Some people experience their head. It feels like it's the size of an elephant. Uh, You might experience like a fly coming and landing on the body or something like this. As you experience these things, it's really beneficial to not scratch your itch or don't shoo the fly away. Or if you feel your head expanding, understand that this is impermanence. The itch is impermanent. The fly crawling on the skin is impermanent. The head feeling like it's expanding, this is impermanent. So if your mind is thinking that you got to itch right away, then what's happening is the mind is craving permanent comfort of the physical body. And as soon as you feel the itch, you feel this urge or this craving to scratch it. You'll actually get more benefit if when a itch arises in the body, is if you just observe that it's arising, it's gonna change and it's gonna fade away. And it's impermanent. And if you continue to focus on the breath, resisting the urge, resisting the craving to itch the body, then you actually get benefit from that, that you can let go of this craving. But when you first start out, you might not have that ability because you're still training the mind, you're just starting. So if you observe an itch and after three seconds, you're like, oh, I gotta itch it then just go ahead and itch it. And then the next time an itch arises, try to go five seconds or 10 seconds or 20 seconds and try to expand it longer and longer where you don't have to actually itch. And this is the gradual training of the mind that you gradually train the mind that you don't have to have permanent comfort in the physical body. And this is very good for your mind. Not painful, not luxurious, but comfortable. But you're also not interested in permanent comfort because that's impossible so when the itch arises you might need to scratch it after a while but what you'd like to do is expand that wider and wider where you can train the mind to resist that craving resist that urge you might experience visual stimulation during your meditation different colors like pink or yellow or green or white lights and things like this What's happening with the head expanding and with the visual stimulation and stuff is as you're training the mind, there's an effect to the physical brain. The brain and the mind aren't the same thing. These are two separate things. So the brain is not the mind and the mind is not the brain. The brain is the organ. It's physical in nature. It's tangible. You can touch the brain. If you cut open the head, you could touch the brain. But the mind is intangible, it's non-physical. You can't actually touch it. But when you're training the mind, it has this connection to the brain and the brain changes. There's physical changes that we can observe through CAT scans and MRIs that are occurring to the brain. But just like the hand is not the brain, but yet when you cut your hand, you can feel that sensation. The same thing is there's this connection between the hand and the brain There's this connection between the mind and the brain. So we've been able to see through research and scientists that there's physical changes that are occurring to the brain as you're training the mind in meditation and as you're training the mind 
outside of meditation. So that's where these physical sensations of the head feeling like it's expanding comes from. That's where the visual stimulation comes from. You can even sometimes hear the brain physically changing as you're meditating. So don't be alarmed by this. Don't think that you're special if you see green or purple or yellow. This is a very common normal occurrence. But sometimes people are looking for significance of these colors and they think that there's some significance. Some people even start feeling arrogant or prideful of like, wow, look at me when I meditate. There's all this yellow or all this purple. But these things are impermanent. They're going to come and go. So if you see any kind of colors or visual stimulation as you're meditating, just let it go and keep focusing on the breath. That's what you'd like to do. Sometimes the mind even replays the past or it tries to envision the future during your meditation. That's the visual stimulation. Just let that go and come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. That's what you'd like to do. And then lastly, there's sometimes external stimulus that somebody might have as part of their meditation practice. What I mean by that is some people meditate with music or they have to have candles, or they have to have a certain scent, or they have beads and they, they use beads during meditation. And there's all these different things that sometimes people use for their meditation. What I would like to encourage you to do is meditate with just three things, the body, the mind, and the breath. That's the only three things you need. If you're currently meditating with beads and music and candles and all these things, you might need to gradually move the mind away from those things because the mind's holding on to these things. You would like to develop a meditation practice where you don't need anything. You strip it down where you just use the body, the mind, and the breath because you're going to have those three things with you throughout the rest of this life. You're going to have the body. You're going to have the mind. You're going to have the breath. So in the example where I had a motorbike accident and I got taken to the hospital by an ambulance, I didn't need to have a special candle or incense or music or mala beads or things like this. You can actually meditate in those situations with just the body, the mind, and the breath because that's how you've trained yourself. Or if you're on holiday, if you're on vacation in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and you're out in the mountains hiking for two or three days, if you need a special gong or special music, those things are all impermanent just like the phone apps and all these other things. While those things might have gotten you to where you are today, what you would like to do is you'd like to let all these things go and train the mind that it doesn't need these to meditate, that all you need is the body, the mind, and the breath. And if you can strip your meditation practice down to just these three things, then you can meditate anywhere. If you're on a plane, if you're on the summit of Mount Everest, if you're on a train, if you're on a boat, if you're in the mountains somewhere, you can meditate anywhere, anytime, because you don't need a special beads or special music or a special phone app. Because if you get your mind addicted or craving or attached to this special phone app, it's impermanent. If you develop your practice for the next four or five years around a phone app, well, what happens when this app doesn't work anymore? or when you don't have this app with you, or that company goes out of business and no longer offers it. Your practice crashes because you haven't developed a practice where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath. Even guided meditation. If you're doing meditation where someone's constantly talking to you, you're not going to be able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Remember, when the Buddha was teaching breathing mindfulness meditation, there wasn't phone apps. 
He didn't use a bunch of candles and incense and mala beads and all these other things. He just used the body, the mind, and the breath because by stripping your meditation practice down like that, then you can actually focus on the breath to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The mind's going to be yearning. It's going to be longing. It's going to have craving. It's going to cling. It's going to want to hold on to things. Even in your meditation practice, you're going to be interested to hold on to music or candles or scents or different things like this. And if your mind continues to hold on to those things and it's not liberated, it's not going to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So you'd like to strip your meditation practice down where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath. And that's what will produce the best results for you. Even when I teach meditation and I guide you, I'm going to be guiding you for a period of time, but then I'm going to be quiet and let you do the work because you've got to get to the point where it's an independent practice. You might use guidance for a little while to get you started and get you moving in the right direction, but ultimately you would like to get to the point where you don't even need guidance to meditate. You can just sit down and meditate or lie or stand or walk. You don't need somebody constantly talking to you all the way through the meditation because now your mind is just holding on to the sound of somebody's voice or to some music or to a candle. So by stripping your meditation practice down, body, mind, and breath, now you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You're eliminating the clinging. You're eliminating that craving for permanence that the mind has. And that's going to be very beneficial for you. Let me see what questions you guys have here. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically. Well, on Zoom, Jen has a question. She writes, thank you, Richard David. If we are meditating and experience peacefulness, calm, love, are these feelings that we should cut off and let go? Or are these wholesome qualities that we should cultivate? In this particular meditation, you would like to cut them off and come back to the breath. Because what the mind's going to want to do is it's going to want to have these thoughts and ideas and perspectives and perceptions and it's going to want to go to the past and the future the mind's going to want to wander and have all these different feelings like the ones that you talked about but what you're trying to do is you're trying to hone it and get it focused on this breath so in this particular meditation you're cutting that off and letting it go and what i would like to add to this even though this wasn't part of your question is we're not working to eliminate thoughts that's not possible. As long as you're alive, you're going to always have thoughts. It's not possible to eliminate the thoughts because the mind's going to always have thoughts. Even if you're in meditation and you're like, oh my goodness, the mind is so peaceful. Look at that. That's a thought. The mind's having a thought. You'd like to cut that off and let it go. You're not trying to eliminate the thoughts. Even when your mind's enlightened, you're going to have thoughts. But what the Buddha talks about is he talks about stilling the mind or quieting the mind. So what will happen as your mind is enlightened is you'll have a thought in meditation. And then there'll be this long pause in between and then there'll be another thought. So the mind is stilled and quieted during that time and then there's another thought. Where you are when you usually start is it's thought, 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 oh, thought, 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 you know, it's just bombarded with thoughts. But what you're going to end up experiencing as you dedicate more and more effort to meditating is these longer and longer periods of stillness or quietness in the mind. And that's what you'd like to get to. But even an enlightened being is going to have an occasional thought. 
what you're actually training in meditation of this particular meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation is you're training the mind that be aware once a thought comes and then once you're aware of it with the mindfulness that you can easily let it go so now you're gaining this control over the mind so that now in daily life when you're in daily life and anger arises or some unwholesome thought arises you can cut it off and let it go so you're not trying to eliminate the thoughts. What you're trying to do is train the mind to easily let them go. And this is going to be really helpful for you when you get to other aspects of the path that you have developed this ability to easily let thoughts go and realize that there's going to be thoughts, but you would like to still the mind or quiet the mind during breathing mindfulness meditation. Well, as for a cutting off and letting go of these thoughts, isn't the goal of meditation is to experience these pleasant feelings? This is one of the misunderstandings about meditation. Sometimes people say the goal is to observe your thoughts or label your thoughts or analyze your thoughts or figure them out. Some people even try to do planning during meditation, like what am I going to have for lunch today? What do I need to get from the grocery store? You know, what task do I need to do today? And someone's sitting there in meditation, their mind is just cycling and cycling and cycling. It's not getting to what the Buddha said, which is quieting the mind and stilling the mind. So all this activity during your meditation that you might hear some people share, you're trying to eliminate all that. So you're not trying to observe the thoughts and see them come into the mind and watch them leave. You're not trying to judge the thoughts. You're not trying to label the thoughts. You're trying to get to the point where as soon as the mind is off the breath, cut it off, let it go and come back to the breath. And wherever the mind is off the breath, you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. You're not trying to label, judge, analyze, observe. You're trying to get to the point where you can let them go as soon as you observe them. And when you first start meditating, you might be in meditation focused on the breath and the mind starts wandering and it's wandering and it's wandering for two or three or four or five minutes, maybe even 10 minutes. And you realize, oh my goodness, I'm meditating. I need to bring the mind back to the breath. And you bring it back to the breath. And then you're on the breath. And then two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, oh my goodness, my mind's been wondering, come back to the breath. So what ends up happening when you first start is it takes you longer and longer period of time to discover that the mind is off the breath. And then when it's off the breath, you just realize that you're not a bad person. You're not bad at meditation. It's just that the mind has moved off the breath and you weren't aware of it because of lack of mindfulness or awareness of mind. But when you become aware of the mind being off the breath, you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. And over a repetitive series of ongoing consistent meditations, now the mind gets better and better at having cultivated mindfulness or awareness of mind. And you observe sooner and sooner that the mind is off the breath. So where before it might have taken you eight or 10 minutes to be aware that the mind is off the breath, as you train, it'll become four minutes or five minutes. Then it'll become two minutes or three minutes. Then it'll become one minute. Then it'll become 30 seconds. Then it'll become 10 seconds. Then it'll become one second. So an enlightened being can observe that their mind has moved off the breath and boom, right away they can bring it back. 
that's the difference between unenlightened and enlightened. One of the differences is that an unenlightened being, their mind is going to be uncontrolled, unrestrained. They're lacking mental discipline. So the mind can wander for a really long period of time when they have a thought. An enlightened being is going to have a thought in meditation at some point, but they're going to have such well-developed mindfulness that they're aware of it right away and they can cut it off right away and bring it back. So the goal isn't to eliminate thoughts. The goal isn't to have these pleasant feelings and have all this bliss and enjoyment in your meditation. The goal is observe the breath, singleness of mind, focus on the breath. That's the present moment. Bring the mind into the present moment by focusing on the breath, developing this awareness of mind or mindfulness and focusing on the breath to develop concentration or singleness of mind. And whenever you observe that the mind is off the breath, you try to catch that sooner and sooner and sooner so that when you're aware of it, you can bring the mind right back to the breath. There's no such thing as a bad meditation. You shouldn't judge your meditations. If you're in meditation and your mind's really, really busy and you finish your meditation and you realize, my goodness, the mind is so busy. But if you go to, that was a horrible meditation, You're judging your meditation. You're comparing and measuring. You're craving your meditation to be the same way it was in the past. And that's not possible because of impermanence. So rather than judge your meditation as good and bad, if you're in meditation and you realize how busy the mind is, that's wisdom. That's good insight for you. Because now you know for the rest of your day, your mind's pretty busy. And if you have any important decisions that you need to make that day, You might be interested to postpone them until your mind is less busy. So you might need to slow down in your day. If you're a chef, you might need to be more attentive to what you're cutting so you don't cut yourself or something like this. So even sitting in meditation and realizing at the end of your meditation, my goodness, the mind is so super busy. That was fruitful. That was beneficial because you're walking away with more wisdom than you had when you started meditation. So don't get into this trap of, looking negatively at your meditation and judging it as good or bad because that's only going to erode your confidence and make it difficult for you because you're going to think you're no good at meditation because your mind's so busy. But that's exactly the reason why you need to meditate is because your mind is so busy. So if you judge your meditation and you kind of degrade yourself through this negative self-talk about your meditation, then it's going to hinder you because now you're going to feel you're no good and that you need to give up in meditating. But that's exactly why you need to meditate because the mind is so busy and there's that negative self-talk in there trying to convince you to give up. But we believe that there is a positive energy or a kind of heavenly power that we acquire while we are meditating. This isn't anything that the Buddha ever taught, that your goal isn't to connect with a higher power. Your goal isn't to explore the heavenly realm while you're meditating. This particular meditation is solely focused on the breath, just the breath. That's the present moment. Anytime it's off the breath, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. It's a really simple, very straightforward technique, but then you have to work at it to get really good at it. Because when you first start meditating, the mind will often be bored or you know lonely. You'll be in meditation because the last thing that this mind wants to do is be trained. If you were an animal trainer and you went into the forest and there was a bunch of wild animals, 
they would run. When they see the animal trainer coming, they're going to run. They don't want anything to do with this training. They're not interested in being tamed. They're enjoying frolicking in the forest and being this wild animal. So when you start sitting down to meditate or doing the other positions, the mind might become utterly bored and it might try to convince you that this is no good. You should give up. But that's exactly why you should be doing it because the mind is experiencing this discontentedness, this boredom. So don't allow those conditioned feelings of boredom and loneliness and things like this to dissuade you from meditating. Instead, you push through that and it's going to experience this boredom. Your mind's going to go through that until you get on the other side. And meditation is very much like it was when you were a child. When you were a child, your parents had to constantly remind you to take a shower, to brush your teeth. They had to constantly remind you because you didn't see the benefit in it. You just wanted to play. You're this wild animal. You're this little kid. You want to play with your friends. You don't want to take a shower and brush your teeth. Who wants to do that at eight years old? There's more fun things to do when you're eight years old, right? But slowly but surely, you started seeing the benefit in the shower and in brushing your teeth. You know, 10 years old, 12 year old, you're like, you know, I kind of like it when I don't have that nasty taste in my mouth. I kind of like it when I smell good and my friends know that I smell good. I kind of like that. It feels good. And then you decided to take a shower on your own more and more. Your parents didn't have to bug you to take a shower and brush your teeth because you saw the benefit in it. Well, when you first start meditating, you might not see the benefits right away. They might not be immediate. So you've got to kind of push through that and accumulate the benefits. And then when you start seeing that your mind does become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, that's when you know that, yes, this is working. And I like it when my mind's calm. I like it when my mind's still and peaceful. I'm going to do this regularly now just like that shower and brushing your teeth you liked it when you smell good you liked it when you brushed your teeth and you decided to do it on your own and your parents didn't need to ask you to do it anymore that's what yes sir we have a couple of questions on facebook denise davis asks is it best to do meditation in complete silence or does noise sometimes help to train the mind with singleness of mind you're going to have both of these arise because it's not possible to be in complete silence all the time. Uh, it's not going to be possible for you to have that. So there's going to be noise that comes up. And then sometimes you're going to be in noise and then it'll be quiet. Like if you decide to go meditate in a cave or something like that. So your mind's going to have to get used to meditating in different environments. So it's beneficial for you to meditate in different environments. If you can be in somewhat of a quiet environment when you're first getting started, this is really helpful. But you shouldn't allow your mind to crave that or get attached to it because you're going to be in situations where you're meditating. Here I meditate in my bedroom and sometimes the neighbor next door, they have a child that has autism and sometimes I hear them screaming and yelling and things like that. And while I'm in meditation, I just know that it's impermanent. So you get used to having these different sounds occur. And if you're meditating in a place that's fairly quiet and you build up your meditation practice that way, then I suggest you actually move your meditation into an environment where there is some noise. There is some different things to challenge the mind. Because if you're always meditating in more of a quiet environment, you're not really challenging the mind. You would like to challenge it in certain situations once you get more established in your meditation practice. 
Thank you, sir. And then also Bruce Benko asks, would it be beneficial to do different things sometimes to prepare the mind for meditation so one doesn't get locked into the same thing? For instance, sometimes should I read the teachings before meditation, other times burn incense, still other times do chanting so the mind doesn't fall into not settling because I didn't do the same thing every time? You could do that. Initially, your mind's going to crave permanence and want permanence. So if you have kind of a standard practice and kind of a standard way of doing things just to get you well established in your meditation practice, and then start tweaking the variables and start playing with things to challenge the mind. So that can be helpful for you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. No more questions, teacher. All right. Well, the last thing I'd like to share with you before we kind of end our class today, and it looks like we're going to need to do meditation uh, next week, is to never give up. Remember what the Buddha said, meditate, students, do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you, right? So don't ever give up, because as you progress in your practice, you're going to experience these challenges and these struggles and these difficulties. And as you progress in your practice, you might get to a point where you'd like to give up. I thought I had given up one time for three years. I stopped meditating for three years. It was the, one of the worst periods in my life ever, but I stopped meditating for three years. And if somebody would have asked me during that time, like, you know, are you ever going to start meditating again? I would have said, nope, never going to meditate. Because at that time, I didn't understand the path the way that I do now and what you can actually experience in terms of the mind eliminating discontentedness. So, in those challenging times and those difficult times where the mind wants to give up and maybe you're like, eh, I don't need to meditate and I'm not going to meditate today. In those situations, put in the effort, put in the energy, put in the dedication to ensuring that you don't ever give up. Now, if you're sick or you just really feel miserable and you just really need to get some sleep, don't force yourself, right? You're not interested in forcing yourself to meditate. If you need to skip a meditation at night, you got one in the morning, but now you just feel miserable, okay, skip it. But then be sure that you get right back into it in the successive days after that. Don't let it go one week or one month or you know one year or three years like I did without meditating because that's where you're gonna regret it later. So don't ever give up. When you experience those challenges and those struggles, just continue forward or reach out to your teacher or reach out to another member of our community. Those of you guys that are in Facebook and Zoom and YouTube, you guys can friend each other and you can get to know each other and have somebody to reach out to as you need support or encouragement occasionally. And then as you need my help, I'm here to help you. So don't ever give up, even though the mind's going to probably get to that point at some point, it's going to have complacency you're gonna to need to overcome that complacency and keep going forward. Remember, your enlightenment isn't gonna be determined whether you miss meditation today. It's based on, okay, if you miss meditation today, what do you do next? Do you keep missing meditation for many days and weeks and months and years? Or do you realize, yeah, I missed meditation today. I'll get right back into it tomorrow. I'll be right back into it. So. That's what you've got to do is ensure that you never give up so that you have this consistency. The Buddha took six years to get to enlightenment. So it's going to take you some time. So you need to settle in for this marathon. It's not a sprint. One of the big myths of the Buddha's life is that he sat down under a tree and he instantly attained enlightenment. 
If you go back to his original source teachings, he doesn't say that. He says that it's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And you'll observe this in your own practice as well, that it's a gradual progression over many, many months and years. You're going to see this gradual progression. So don't think that you're going to be an expert on meditation today or this week or even this month. It's going to take you time to develop it. If you like home improvement projects and you just like kind of improving your home and these are things that you've done or maybe your car or you like to kind of maintain things and have things become improved, that's what you're doing. You've got this home improvement project right now. This is your mind. You're working to actively improve this home, this mind that you've got because you're living in this mind and you're interested in this mind being very peaceful. So you're just going to gradually chip away at it and gradually build up your training, gradually practice, and you'll gradually experience the progress and the results. But along that path, there can be some struggles and difficulties. And the Buddha says, don't shrink back from the struggle. If you shrink back from the struggle, that's giving up. That's giving into complacency. Instead, turn around and face the challenge and walk towards it. That's how you overcome the challenge, not running from it, not becoming complacent, right? The way that you overcome a challenge is you turn around and you walk towards the challenge. And that's what I would suggest for you as you experience challenges in your meditation practice. So let me see what questions you guys have. I intended to do a meditation session together with you today, but just looking at the time, that would extend us for quite a little while here. And I would like to be sensitive to your time. What we'll do is in our next class session, which is next Wednesday, we won't be doing all these teachings. We'll just, I'll say hello, I'll kind of remind you of a few things, and then we'll go right into meditation and be sure that we can do a meditation session together. If you would like to start meditating now, what I suggest you do is over the course of this week, go look at one of the other classes that I've taught, which is recorded in YouTube, on the podcast and in Facebook, where you can have me guide you in meditation. And then you can actually do some meditation as part of getting your meditation practice going. So this week you can start meditating already. What you would like to do is just focus on the breath and focus on the breath. As you're meditating, just keep the mind fixated on the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. And wherever you observe that the mind's off the breath, you cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. But if you'd like to get some guidance in actually a guided meditation, you can see in our YouTube channel, on our podcast and in Facebook, there's plenty of videos that I share the guidance of actually getting into meditation and coming out of meditation. So what questions do you guys have? Well, what's your advice for someone who is interested to improve their mind and practice meditation, but they are not able to uh, focus on the breath even for 30 seconds or one minute? Whatever time you can focus on the breath, then you do it. And if your mind wanders and you're struggling to get the mind back to the breath, keep going. Don't give up. Because... That's the exact reason why you need to meditate, because your mind is being bombarded with thoughts. You don't have control over the mind. You don't have this mental discipline. So wherever you are starting, that's where you're starting. You're not in a race with anybody. You're not in competition with anybody. This is your own independent journey. This is your path to enlightenment. This is your work. So if you're meditating five minutes per session and somebody else is meditating an hour, okay, 
that's them. You know, that's where they're at. Uh, you shouldn't be measuring and comparing what you're doing to someone else because that's when you're going to feel diminished. This is your path to enlightenment. This is your practice, your independent journey. So you just start wherever you start and then you gradually work to expand it. If anybody would like to schedule a personal guidance session with me to get some personal guidance and guide you in meditation and get you started that way, I can do that. All you need to do is go to our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. And from there, you'll see the link for schedule. You can schedule a private appointment where I can help you privately and get you started with meditation as well. Some people like to do that. But next Wednesday, I will be teaching meditation and guide you in meditation. We'll probably do about 15, 20, 30 minutes worth of meditation. Usually I start out kind of short when I first get going in the series. And then by the time we get going in the group learning program, we'll build up to 30 and 45 minute meditations as we progress over the seven months. Thanks, Sir. That's all for today. All right. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for today's class on this Sunday. We're going to be doing that second part of the three-part series for the Eightfold Path. We're going to be discussing the moral conduct. We're going to be discussing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And there we're going to use the words of the Buddha and penetrate down into what are the words of the Buddha and the teachings that he shared around this very central and core teaching of the Eightfold Path. Then next Wednesday, we're going to be doing meditation together. So you're welcome to join these classes live. Or if you can't attend live, they're recorded and you can get the recordings through Facebook, YouTube, or the podcast. So I'd like to thank all of you for your dedication and your diligence for learning. Feel free to reach out to me through Facebook. You can post a question in our Facebook group and I'll answer it there. You can ask questions in these online classes. You can send me a private message or you can schedule a personal guidance session. These are the four ways that I can help you get you some personal guidance. For me, the way that I teach is it's up to you to reach out for guidance. You're not going to hear me call you or send you a message to ask you if you meditated. This is your independent journey. It's your path. So I'm here to provide you guidance and I offer all these different ways. So feel free to utilize them and reach out and get help as you need help. So I'll see you either Sunday and or Wednesday. And in the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.